Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Uh, thank you very much for the welcome and uh, good uh, morning, um, fellow delegates. Uh, I too would like to begin by acknowledging uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Alliance and also to thank uh, Dennis uh, Moriarty and our community for the invitation to speak today before such a large audience. Who's lucky country? At the time Donald Horne wrote The Lucky Country 50 years ago, any notion of Indigenous society was missing from public perception policy thinking and academic endeavour. It was invisible. Things started to change in the 1960s, but it was only really after 1971 that Indigenous societies were rendered visible by a more comprehensive inclusion in the five-yearly census. More recently, from the mid-1970s, with land rights and their native title, Cultural revival has seen forms of Indigenous communities become more visible again, especially in regional and remote Australia. In this presentation, I want to make a series of historical observations about ways of thinking about Indigenous society and economy over the past 50 years, starting with Donald Horne. My speciality is economics and anthropology, so I will focus on the mundane, everyday issue of development for livelihood. Although I am a believer and advocate of the view promoted by the economic historian Karl Polanyi that the economy is embedded in society. Indeed, I would go further and argue, as ecological economists do, that while the economy is embedded in society, both are also embedded in the environment. My argument to signpost is as follows. Donald Horne's brief coverage of the first Australians was of its time, but he did not seriously address the moral question of who owned the lucky country. The dominance of settler colonialism back then was fata complete, and like the historian Patrick Wolfe, he predicted the elimination of native societies and, in accordance with thinking of the time, believed that this disappearance would occur via integration or assimilation, symbolic as distinct from earlier physical frontier violence. He did not foresee that uh, he did not foresee changes that would follow two events that just preceded and just followed publication of his book. The first preceding event was the Yakala Bark Petitions of 1963, that signalled to the Australian Parliament that Aboriginal people in remote Australia were serious about asserting their customary millennia-old rights in land. These petitions lodged just a year after Indigenous people were enfranchised to vote in the federal elections were important precursors to subsequent land rights introduced a decade later. The second following event was the amendment of the Australian Constitution in 1967 that allowed the inclusion of Aboriginal people in reckoning the population of Australia. From the 1971 census, there's been a means to accurately estimate the Indigenous population that has demographically flourished. However, Horne's book was prescient on two grounds. First, his brief observations showed, uh, his brief 1964 observations show the dominant colonial way of thinking about the Indigenous economy and society has changed little since then despite the emergence of new Indigenous possibilities that I will discuss. The central goal of policy has been to integrate, perhaps a less obnoxious term than assimilate, Indigenous people into the conventional Australian economy and society. The current articulation of this goal is the closing the gap policy framework, pursuing targets unilaterally set by the state and measured by official statistics. These most recently have been called uh, by the Abbott government uh, Indigenous advancement. Policy is increasingly influenced by a neoliberal trope emphasising individualism, entrepreneurship, material accumulation and the free market, a trope anathema 
to many Indigenous people whose norms and values remain focused on kin, community and country. Today's policy language sounds little different from assimilation discourse of the early 1960s. Second, Donald Hood wrote, Australia is a lucky country run by second-class people who share its luck. He was not referring specifically to the political and bureaucratic elites who devise and then implement monolithic Indigenous policy that continues to be replicated year in, year out, year out even as it fails to deliver. But he may well have been. I'm not for one moment suggesting that addressing the Indigenous development problem in Australia is a straightforward task. What I do believe, though, is that the dominant approach in 1964, as well as in 2014, is a misframing that ignores Indigenous differences and diversity of aspirations and circumstances, especially in regional and remote Australia, where I mainly work. We can do better. And so I will end by turning to social justice and community-based development and ask how thinking about Indigenous development might be reframed to better reflect 21st century realities, commitments to human rights and the growing plurality of livelihood forms post, post the land rights era. My focus will be on remote Australia, where arguably the challenges are greatest. I want to make some suggestions for how communities can be assisted to take control, how we can shift from governance for dependence to governance for community-controlled development. But first, let me start with a grounding vignette. And I'd like to say that uh, I ran this vignette past the person who features in it most prominently last week uh, when I was in Manangrita in the Northern Territory. And he was very pleased that I was uh, making uh, this presentation in part on his behalf. In 1979 and 1980, I lived with a Ganigu man, John Moundjil, and his extended family at an outstation called Moormega in Western Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Balang, as he's generally referred to, was a young aspiring artist, hunter, ceremony and family man who decided in the 1980s to focus much energy on painting. And these are some of his uh, early bark paintings. By the 1990s, after the prolonged trials and tribulations normally experienced by artists, he emerged to be Australia's best-known bark painter. These are examples of some of his later paintings. Um, the mythic figure Bulawana from uh, the sacred site Dilibung and a representation of the sacred Bilibwang at Gugodbabuldi. In 2003, um, he won the Clemenger Prize here in Melbourne, the first Indigenous artist to do so. In 2004, he was the lead artist at the major retrospective Crossing Country at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. In 2005 and 2006, he had a major retrospective, Rark John Moundjil, at the Musée Tinguely, Basel, Switzerland, and at the Springer Museum, Hanover, Germany. He had books published about him and his arts practice. In 2006, he was heavily involved in the uh, Musée Cabranly Commission and was the only Australian artist to work on site. He painted the major um, bone pole that's uh, at uh, Cabranly and painted the ceiling of the bookshop. At that time, he was a significant culture, cultural ambassador to, for Australia meeting um, the president of, um, of France um, who was launching the Musée de Cabranly and there with arts advisor Apolline Cohen. That's Jacques Chirac, for those who don't know. In 2009, he won the Melbourne Art Foundation Artist of the Year Award, the first Indigenous artist to do so. These were happy times. Balang was at his peak living entirely and comfortably on his arts earnings. In 2010, he was made a member in the General Division of the Order of Australia to service to 
for service to the preservation of Indigenous culture as the foremost exponent of the RAC visual art style. But after 2009, his career nosedived as his community-controlled organisation, Manangreed Arts and Culture, and its parent, the incorporated Bawananga Aboriginal Corporation, got into financial difficulties. And with the global financial crisis, the demand for fine art like his declined rapidly. This rapid decline for both Balang and for Bawananga has been exacerbated by changed policy circumstances that have seen a shift from a local form of self-determination and community control to imposed mainstreaming and normalisation, authoritarian neoliberalism that aims to alter people's norms and means of livelihood. In 2010, I saw Balang in hospital in Darwin for the first time ever, unwell and psychologically distressed by his rapidly declining arts career. In 2011, he told me of his deep dissatisfaction with a new arts advisor who was subsequently dismissed. By 2012, he was living in an area known as Side Camp in the township of Manangreta on Newstart, a social security benefit for the unemployed, dispirited. He had no vehicle to return to his outstation arts studio at Milmulkan. Three years earlier, in 2009, he had three four-wheel drive vehicles in excellent working order, a hunting truck, a family truck and an arts truck. In September last year, he told me, he had given up painting. There was a large stock of his art at Managreta Arts and Culture. I watched him, aged over 60, walking to the Yayai workshop in the Managreta Industrial Precinct looking for a real job as a tyre repairer, as required by the new remote jobs and community program if one is not to be breached and left destitute with no new start and no cash. I cannot pretend that our relationship is not sadly strained. Balang imagines that I have the power to assist in the repair of his career and to restore the fortunes of Managrita Arts and Culture and the Bawananga Aboriginal Corporation, institutions that I've worked with closely over many years. I, in turn, feel deeply frustrated and angry at my inability to make a difference, and I lament my powerlessness to facilitate a more secure livelihood for his retirement. There's a degree of cross-cultural tension about who's responsible for whom and for what. And this last slide is of Balang last week, um, sitting at site camp with his broken truck stuck in Manangreta. This vignette captures metaphorically and graphically some of what I want to talk about today. In 1963, as Donald Horn was riding the lucky country, Balang, born in 1952, was transported from the bush in the Arnhem Land Aboriginal Reserve to Manangreta for treatment of early leprosy. Subsequently, he lived there for a decade before returning to live on his country. He was lucky enough to get land rights. From the, early, from the late 1970s for 30 years, Balang engaged successfully with global capitalism and the state, only to see everything in his world come crashing down after the Northern Territory intervention and the global financial crisis. While the vagaries of the market cannot be controlled by arts price takers in remote Arnhem Land, it does seem that Balang's career was on a sounder footing when communities were in control, our conference theme prior to the latest round of paternalistic state intervention. I'll return to Balang and his prospects briefly in my conclusion. Where were we in, in 1964? In 1961, the government belatedly released a definition of the policy of assimilation that stated, all Aborigines and part Aborigines are expected to attain the same manner of living as other Australians and to live as members of a single Australian community, enjoying the same rights and privileges, accepting the same responsibilities, observing the same customs, and influenced by the same beliefs, hopes, and loyalties as other Australians. End of quote. This definition fitted well with the then emerging modernisation paradigm in development thinking. There was no conceivable alternative to joining the mainstream economy and society. This idea of assimilation accords well with Patrick Wolfe's theorisation that settler colonial society was premised on displacing Indigenous people from their land and their elimination. 
While settler colonialism's negative dimension was and remains the goal to dissolve native societies, an option emerges from the logic of elimination, the possibility of integration of Indigenous people as citizens of the Australian nation, as the Assimilation Policy Statement implies. In 1964, Donald Horne's The Lucky Country was published. Horne only devoted a few pages to Aborigines in a discussion of racism in a chapter Living with Asia. Horne noted that all the governments concerned with Aborigines, and I use his language here, by the way, he ex and he excluded Tasmania because he suggested that they were all killed there, are now committed to assimilation. He also noted that while there are still some Aborigines leading tribal lives, the possibility of preserving their civilization, either as museum piece, pieces or in respect to their wishes, seems small. Quoting the words of Peter Coleman of The Observer, he noted, I quote, Assimilation ultimately means absorption, and that means extinction. As a nation, with its own way of life, and even as a race, the Aborigines are still, are still destined to disappear. It is one of the ironies of our history that the only recompense we're able to give this race for what we have done is to help it disappear. End of quote. Such was progressive thinking at the time. Altered thinking in the 1960s. In 1963, just as Donald Horne was penning The Lucky Country, an important research project, Aborigines in Australian Society, headed by Charles Rowley and funded in large measure by the My Foundation, and auspiced by the Social Science Research Council began. A series of books over a decade documented the diversity of Indigenous participation in the settler colonial society. In particular, Rowley's work fundamentally altered understandings about Indigenous involvement in the settler economy. He clearly distinguished Outcasts in White Australia, a book published in 1970, from The Remote Aborigines, a book published in 1971 establishing an enduring binary of the continent that persists today, remote and non-remote, and most recently, Northern Australia and the rest. This distinction, as I will show, has acquired new significance in the era of land rights and native title. A number of volumes in the Rowley series made, the Aboriginal, made Aboriginal economic participation far more visible in contexts as diverse as urban Adelaide, by Faye Gale, the Northern Territory Cattle Industry by Frank Stevens, Government Settlements in New South Wales by Jeremy Long, and Aboriginal Advancement to Integration in Western Australia by Henry Schapper. The 1960s was a time when the inclusions of Indigenous peoples uh, in the, in the from the benefits of the social democratic welfare state sorry, the exclusions of Indigenous people from the benefits of the social democratic welfare state were being rapidly dismantled. But there was little sense of the significance of the Indigenous component of the Australian economy or even of its population because of an absence of statistics rendering Indigenous people invisible. As recently as in 1973, sociologist Frank Jones was able to observe, and I quote, the absence of reliable demographic data on the Aboriginal population of Australia reflects their unequal status in contemporary Australian society. Under the criteria applied until recently by Australian immigration authorities to screen potential migrants, most Aborigines would have been denied the right to settle in their own country. One wonders how much things have changed 40 years on. Indigenous people rendered statistically visible. The overwhelming yes vote to the 1967 referendum, deleting section 127 of the constitution, meant that all Indigenous people were to be included for the first time in reckoning the number of people of the Commonwealth. In the, fol the following chart documents the changing size of the Indigenous population count from 116,000 in 1971 to 548,000 in 2011, the latest census, a growth of almost 500%, reflecting both the growing willingness and pride to identify as well as rapid natural increase. 
These are not disappearing peoples. The availability of social indicator data from the five-yearly census has also made it possible to look at socioeconomic outcomes for the Indigenous population in areas such as employment, education, housing and health and to compare these outcomes with the general population. There is a long, subsequent and escalating history of such analyses in academia and in government and the associated adoption of the notion of statistical convergence of outcomes for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians as a, as a paramount national priority, at least at the level of discourse. In policy terms, the convergence approach was first explicitly proposed by the progressive and managerialist government of Bob Hawke. His government's Aboriginal Employment Development Policy, launched in 1987, had a goal of statistical equality by the year 2000. Very obviously, um, that goal failed, in part because of overreach. More recently, there's been a rapid escalation, almost a policy obsession, with statistical measurement of key indicators for Indigenous and other Australians, especially since the Productivity Commission started producing its massive Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage reports from 2002. Most recently, from 2008, we've seen the hegemonic dominance of the Closing the Gap policy framework introduced ironically as an element of the national apology and including economic variables like a goal to halve the employment gap between Indigenous and other Australians by the year 2018. Now, in the next uh, couple of uh, busy tables, I just want to very briefly present some information about absolute changes across a few socioeconomic variables. And really, you can see this just as a bit of a glimpse. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't produce this in more detail, but I will make this available on the website. You can see different censuses uh, from 71 to 2001 and variables like unemployment, employment, private sector, uh, employment, labour force participation, median weekly income. Um, and also, you can see other variables like uh, participation in education, post-school qualifications, life expectancy and population aged over 55. Most of these variables in absolute terms have improved, uh, but very, very slowly. But closing the gap is not about absolute change, but change in relative terms, which is what gap reduction seeks to measure. And so what I want to do in a few charts is show you, in fact, what's happening in terms of the ratio of Indigenous to non-Indigenous outcomes um, using a scale of zero to one, with one representing equality in statistical terms on the vertical axis. And you can see here, for example, when we look at some of those absolute change variables in relative terms, um, things um, have barely changed. In some cases, they've actually gone backwards in relation to relative Indigenous employment compared to non-Indigenous Australians. It's a better news story uh, in relation to educational outcomes, but we are still far short of that parity that's uh, represented by the one and uh, very worrying in relation to uh, life expectancy in people aged over 55. Uh, you can see if anything, things might be going backwards. Although unfortunately from 2001, we changed the way we measure these things so long-term trends uh, are possible. So as I said, while in some areas there is long-term improvement, in others there is intractability and even decline. Elsewhere, colleagues and I have suggested rather unpopular with a number of governments since John Howard's that it will take decades to eliminate statistical disparities where there is convergence, bearing in mind that in some areas there is long-term divergence of outcomes. It is important to note in all the statistical talk that data derived from the census or even from special surveys like the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Survey are often quite disconnected from the form that Indigenous household economy might take. Not only do such collection instruments ignore situations where there might be a significant customary or non-market sector, but they also suggest, struggle to capture the reality of mixed household formations. Statistics tell you something about individuals, but individuals, especially Indigenous ones, 
rarely live in isolation from family, household or community. It goes almost without saying too that from an Indigenous standpoint, talk about deficiencies, gaps, disparities are demeaning and focus on the neg negatives. There is little focus on Indigenous assets or positives in such deficit-focused statistical picturing. But such shortcomings do not deter many interest groups and political actors from using them. Indeed, it is hard to avoid the ubiquity of the term closing the gap in policy and public discourse in a manner reminiscent of political scientist Murray Edelman's renowned commentary about words that succeed and policies that fail. Indigenous lands rendered spatially visible. Henry Reynolds in Forgotten War has recently described the colonial land grab in Australia from 1788 as one of the greatest illegal appropriations of land in world history. This has been partially countered in the past 40 years by an extraordinary transfer of land back to traditional owners that I've termed a land titling revolution perhaps the greatest restitution of land without warfare in recent times anywhere in the world. This restitution has occurred for social justice and legal reasons, responding in large measure to prolonged Aboriginal activism in this area. From the 1938 Day of Mourning, the 1963 Yakala Bark Petitions, the 1996 Gurindji Walk-Off from Wave Hill and the establishment of the Tent Embassy in Canberra in 1972 all iconic moments in a long political struggle. From the 1970s, first progressive government, and then from the 1990s, a progressive judiciary in the aftermath of the Mabo High Court judgment, sought to bring Australia in lockstep with other affluent settler colonial societies globally to recognise Indigenous rights to land. The impact of these changes continentally can be seen in the following map. And you can see there, of course, in uh, 1788, uh, Australia was owned entirely by Indigenous nations. In 1964, when the Lucky Country was launched, there was no legally recognised Indigenous land interest. Hence my question, who's Lucky Country? Today, in marked contrast, 33% of Australia is under some form of Indigenous title, although property rights and much of this land remain very weak, despite the use of terms like exclusive possession in relation to native title, that do not in fact confer any right to exclude. This next map provides a bit more detail on Indigenous land interests differentiating three forms of title. Land rights mainly from the 1970s and 1980s and then post-Mabo determination of exclusive and non-exclusive possession under, under native title uh, law. And you can see the land rights is the orange, uh, native title exclusive is in the blue and native title non-exclusive is in the yellow. What this map shows very clearly is that most Indigenous land is in remote Australia. What this map does not show is that property rights are highly variable by form of tenure, with the strongest free prior and informed consent, the right to exclude or veto, being vested only in Commonwealth land rights laws for the Northern Territory. Native title exclusive possession only provides land holders with a right to negotiate while non-exclusive possession, that which is shared with others, confers minimal property rights. As native title encroaches on the more densely populated and predominantly non-Indigenous southeast and southwest, the weaker, I suspect, Indigenous rights and interests will become. In the next two slides, I want to overlay some demographic information over those slides, over the land rights slide. This slide shows the distribution of Indigenous population from the 2011 census. It is clear from this map that only a small proportion of the Indigenous population are lucky enough to live on their reclaimed ancestral lands, although it is important to note that the distribution is of population, not landowners. Most Indigenous people have not had the luck as yet to reclaim their land. The next map shows the distribution of what the Australian Bureau of Statistics terms discrete Indigenous communities, although many of these larger communities have non-Indigenous residents. 
There are nearly 1,200 so-called discrete Indigenous communities in Australia with a total population of less than 100,000. Nearly 1,000 of these communities are either on or within one kilometre of Indigenous land and these communities are tiny. A thousand of them have populations of less than 100 people each. I'll make two observations here. First, in the next map, I provide some information on registered land claims and population. And I'll do that in the following table. While most of the land rights and native title action to date has been in very remote regions, there is possibility that determinations almost entirely of non-exclusive possession will cover more and more of Australia. Possibly, as an outside possibility, 70%, where up to 40% of the Indigenous population currently resides. And you can see that a little bit more clear, clearly in this rather busy table. Second, in places where land is held under exclusive possession and the Indigenous share of the population is greater than 80%, and you can see that in the first two rows in this table, there is potential for radical reframing of the economic development question well beyond seeing integration and closing the gap as the answer. Paradoxically, perhaps, there is a policy expectation that with land rights and native title, closing, gap closing will magically follow, with politicians and their spokespeople like Warren Mundine increasingly bemoaning that Indigenous people are land rich but dirt poor. Such discourse fails to acknowledge that the very reason that remote lands were available for claim was that they were unalienated crown lands with no or little commercial value. That is, unless groups today strike it lucky with mining. From the lucky country to too much luck. I began this paper by raising the question, who's lucky country, to signal that Australia's luck was predicated on the dispossession of the original inhabitants, the unlucky. More recently, Paul Cleary has described Australia as a country with too much luck, referring to the mining boom, and as a minefield, referring to the dark side of Australia's resources rush. Again, one might ask, too much luck for whom? And a minefield for whom? Cleary highlights that despite the expansion of the Aboriginal land base, there is little evidence that Indigenous people are actually benefiting from the mining boom, upon which the nation is becoming more and more dependent. This puts his views in opposition to those of Marcia Langton, who in the 2012 Boyer Lecture describes a quiet revolution where Indigenous people were benefiting from the resources boom. I do not want to take sides in this debate today, but merely want to note that mineral mapping indicates that some Indigenous-owned lands may be highly prospective, and so there may be opportunities for direct and indirect benefit to be leveraged from mining. And you can see this in the following map, which shows um, operational map, uh, mines in Australia. It also shows mineral prospects. This is not a dot painting. It's a painting. It's, a, it's not a painting at all. It's a slide that shows all the mineral prospects in some uh, very extraordinarily rich mineral provinces in Australia. Um, the question with mining, uh, and, and the proviso has to be, that it should only occur if and only if Aboriginal people want to have their lands opened up to such an industrial extraction developmental option. And what that means in reality is having massive mines on your country, uh, like this mine, the Rangi Uranium Mine, uh, encapsulated within Kakadu National Park. At the same time, because much Indigenous-owned land today was historically remote and of low commercial value, it has experienced relatively little environmental disturbance and has retained high biodiversity and associated conservation values. And I'll just show you this with one slide, which gives you an idea of some of the unmodified vegetation in Australia compared with some of the what's called removed or replaced vegetation. And you can basically see where you've had a commercial agriculture and development and high populations. You've had massive impacts on the Australian um, the condition of vegetation and where you've got indigenous lands, it just so happens because of their low commercial value that lands are in great uh, environmental condition. This raises the possibility for new development thinking about the production of ecological commodities, 
fresh air, high quality fresh water, carbon abatement and sequestration, and biodiversity, which will become tradable. Increasingly, there are Indigenous protected areas and aspirations expressed by those tiny remote communities located on Indigenous lands to play a leading role in the conservation economy. In her recent book, Scales of Justice, Nancy Fraser uses the notion of misframing to refer to a type of injustice that arises when first audit questions of justice are framed in a way that wrongly excludes some from consideration. Fraser gives the example of how national framing of distributive issues forecloses the claims of the global poor. In Australia, in my view, um, thinking about Indigenous economic development has been misframed because of a preoccupation with integration and statistical equality, which forecloses the claims of Indigenous people who may want something very different. I advocate for one possible reframing of Indigenous economy with a concept of economic hybridity that depicts market, state and customary sectors delivering livelihood and acknowledges the mix of capitalist and non-capitalist relations of production in many contemporary Indigenous contexts. Economic hybridity proposes that especially where people have newfound rights and land based on custom, it is likely that custom looms large and can make important contributions to livelihoods, not just in the conservation economy, but also in the arts and tourism and in forms of wildlife utilisation for livelihood and for sale. It involves a broadening of the economic base beyond the narrow notion of the real economy which is absent in much of remote Australia. Let me very briefly make some concluding comments. Fifty years ago, it was suggested that integration would result in disappearance, what Patrick Wolfe referred to as the elimination of the native. And there is no doubt that some powerful Indigenous and non-Indigenous political actors in Australia today would like to see any notion of Indigenous economy and society disappear, to be thought of no differently from a late capitalist economy discursively envisaged as neoliberal or free market. But in reality, as I've shown, the Indigenous population is not disappearing and there is a mismatch between policy goals and the ways of living and being of Indigenous people and their aspirations, most clearly evident at remote communities on Indigenous land. So I want to ask how we might break the hegemonic and monolithic developmental approach that has become increasingly intolerant of pluralistic forms of economy and being. As the Amerindian scholar Vine Deloria Jr. in Custer Died for Our Sins warned way back in 1969, equality must not be conflated or confused with sameness. He also noted that civil rights is a function of man's desire for self-respect, not for equality. Similarly, a reframing of thinking about Indigenous development might require less emphasis on equality. In the present, there is much rhetoric about getting communities back in control, empowering communities but so little policy or practice that will actually facilitate this. Policy focuses instead on utopian notions of real or mainstream economy for remote Indigenous Australia. We need to radically reform our approach. So let me end with some comment on community-based development. This conference is about communities in control. I'm sure that many delegates here work with Indigenous community-based organisations. And I know that the conference convener, ourcommunity.com.au, assists many, including the company Garagat Ganji and Trust, where I'm a foundation director. I appeal to the community sector to engage with Indigenous development because at the heart of your approach are some bread and butter principles that are increasingly ignored in Indigenous policy making in Canberra. These include the
the following seven principles. First, Indigenous development needs to be owned and driven by communities, participatory and bottom-up, not imposed and top-down. There is no evidence that coercive paternalism works anywhere. Second, any effective notion of development needs to be holistic and whole of community, a negotiated process to improve well-being, not an imposed process to address largely abstract statistical disparities. Third, development needs to recognise the diversity of Indigenous circumstances, from here in Melbourne to the remotest parts of the continent. The value of customer activity needs recognition, as does the inevitable intercultural mix of norms that will inform Indigenous decision-making and governance. Fourth, to be effective, development assistance will need to be targeted, taking into account the reality of Indigenous demographics and patterns of residence. Remote Indigenous communities are more discreet and easier to identify. Targeting in urban and metropolitan contexts is far more difficult, which is why community-based approaches are so important in both contexts, not just in remote Australia. Fifth, any development strategy needs to acknowledge that poverty is a symptom of powerlessness. The politico-economic and structural sources of deep inequality need to be addressed. Sixth, the proper role of the state is to get institutional settings right for development in all its diverse forms, not to promote a preconceived notion like closing the gap of what form development might take. And finally, policy-making processes must get beyond tokenistic consultation and the appointment of like-minded advisers co-opted to a state project that has and continues to fail. We need to look for more competition of ideas, a wider set of perspectives. I'm sure Donald Horne would concur with many of these principles. The issue of Indigenous development is far too important to leave to political and bureaucratic processes, especially as these processes are becoming subject to levels of political manipulation that have been unimagined in Horn's lucky country. I want to end by returning to Balang and the Guinea community to which he belongs, living between outstations and the township of Manangrida in Western Arnhem Land, a group who are among the most vulnerable in Australian society today, especially in terms of representation, but also because of their high dependence on the state. As I mentioned earlier, I visited this group last week and discussed much of this presentation with them. Fifty years ago, as the Ngeningu moved into Manangrida and out of the bush, they were written off as a distinct group or community, destined to be sedentarised and civilised and assimilated, to disappear. That experiment failed. But like all Indigenous Australians, they have never ceded sovereignty to the colonisers. From the 1970s, they combined their hunting and artistic skills as a lifeline to reassert who they are, their rights and land and their distinct, relatively autonomous form of livelihood. And for several decades, this strategy, promoted by many, including myself, worked at, worked at least in regional terms. What will now emerge after 2014 as the emergent as the imagined hope and future for the children and grandchildren of John Mounjil, many already fine artists. It should not, I think, just be a choice between the risk of being an artist and the mundaneness of being a tyre fixer at the Yayai workshop. In today's uncertain late capitalist world, there have to be other less risky alternatives and mixtures including caring for country, in this case with early dry season burning. Hunting, in this case for magpie geese. 
and arts production. I end with this picture of Milmulkan, Maunjil's sacred waterhole, a key theme in his now past repertoire, visually documenting his rights and land, in contrast to my earlier Western cadastral mapping. This is his lucky country that garnered him a respectable livelihood and regional, national and global respect as an artist. We need to consider how combining his agency with our community-based developmental expertise and advocacy might, if not restore his personal fortunes, at least ensure that others are not exposed to the high-risk precariousness and deep poverty that he has unfortunately experienced and endured and continues to experience and endure in today's lucky country. Thank you. John, in our 12 years of uh, this conference, we've had some remarkable presentations, but I, don't, I can't recall any that has been a presentation that has come back to our theme so clearly and articulated that so clearly about communities in control. And those seven principles you, you gave us were extremely helpful, I, I think. Uh, yesterday when I was here, I noticed uh, our community manifesto, and I'm not here, sure if it's here today, but if it is, we're going to whisk it away and just run, it, run those seven principles over it. I think they're all in there, but, but we better check. We've got some time for some uh, questions now, and uh, we have uh, some roving microphones, which... I've brought around, you'll see the people with the table tennis bats. They're not bringing aircraft in. <coughs> they have the microphone. So if you would like to stand up or raise your hand, uh, we'll um, try and get some questions underway for the next 15 minutes or so. Not seeing anyone. Uh, I have one over, over here, just on the uh, second table back in the middle. Thanks. Hi, I'm Karen and I'm from Alice Springs. Welcome everyone. Um, I, I work with um, Indigenous people um, you know, six days a week uh, in our, our area and um, I work with um, Indigenous people with a disability and I actually have found it, especially with this change of government, the, um, the profoundness and the, um, and the hopelessness in some sort of ways that... Um, is coming through with some of the policies. You know, I feel that the big, you know, there's this idea that as long as Canberra gets the big tick on the box, you know, with um, what they want to achieve, then, you know, that's, you know, that's their number one priority. Whereas the priority really are these people. And, um, you know, they set up things like they want me to run a program where I teach Cert 1 and Cert 2 for people with severe disabilities and horse riding um, within three months. It's only setting up those people to fail. So therefore that's the sort of thing that we need to refuse and we need to get out there and say these people have been failed so many times by these sort of policies and they need to change. Mm. And um, that's it. Thank you. Uh, just down. Yes. Hi. Hi, my name's Annie Duncan from Australian Communities Foundation. I work with an Aboriginal kindy in Thomastown and my husband works with a community in East Arnhem Land living on its homelands. It seems to me in both cases that the government does exactly what you say, words that succeed and policies that fail. The words are terrific but there's no congruence with action. Mm. In the case of the kindy, the money has been taken away just as soon as the building has been built, so there's no money for it to continue. In the case of the homeland, the teacher is continually being unpaid by the, New South, uh, the Northern Territory Government mm. and the teachers and bureaucrats don't give a damn 
that the kids don't have a teacher and that happens to be when they send the people to check out how many kids are at school. Of course, they're not there because the teacher hasn't been there for two weeks and so they say there's not enough kids so you can't have a teacher. So I just wonder what we can do to try and hold people to account for some of these things. The ideas are great but the execution is really bad. If I can make a comment, I, uh, I totally agree with you and the ridiculous thing is that the government's own statistics tell them that they're failing but they still continue to pursue the old ways that have always uh, let people down. Um, and what's worse um, in relation to, of course, school attendance is that if there is no school, there'll be no attendance and then the parents, of course, can lose their welfare. Um, which will just drive people deeper and deeper into poverty. Um, and the other thing, of course, um, is that we do have examples where bilingual education and learning on country actually result in very um, positive shifts in school attendance and learning outcomes, and government is unsympathetic to these different ways of doing things. What I find most concerning is that some of the institutions that we used to have to hold government accountable, like the COAG uh, Reform Council, have now been abolished after their first five-year report, which showed that uh, some things are improving, many things are not improving, and some important things are going backwards. And the response of government has been, just in the last few days, to say... We'll do the monitoring within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. We don't need the COAG Reform Council. And, of course, from an Indigenous point of view, the National Congress of Indigenous First Peoples, an outspoken critic of the Australian government of whatever political persuasion, has been defunded in the last budget. So as the rhetoric uh, builds up, the actual machinery to check whether it's delivering is being wound back. And I think that that is extraordinarily concerning for Australia's society. Uh, just in front of me. Thank you. Thanks for your great um, discussion uh, talk this morning, John. Um, Steve Burton's my name. I've uh, recently moved to this part of the world after 10 years in Broken Hill Region and uh, started life in the Davenport Ranges on an Aboriginal community as a white fella. Um, when my father was working there. Um, so I've, al I've always had a bit of a, an abiding interest in sp specifically in, in talks such as this, looking at some of the issues of, uh, I guess, colonisation of, of a country that was so incredibly different to, to the people that colonised it. And, and um, I have to, have to say that I do find that the concept of colonisation, uh, I think it's just been something that we've had across the planet ever since the dawn of time. Um, so I don't think Australia in any way is any different from anyone else, nor, nor can I see that we particularly have done it any worse than anyone else. It's just been a terrible, terrible thing that's been a part of human nature is, is colonising. My, my, my big question is, and I've just finished reading the book uh, called um, uh, King Brown, The Betrayal of Papunya by uh, Russell Skelton, I think his name was, and he won the Walkley Award for that, and it's a, it's a tragic read. Uh, it's a book that you can't put down. Um, he won the Walkley Award for that, I believe, because it was a very interesting look at, um, I guess, Aboriginal politics itself in some ways and the, if I can go so far as saying, the abuse of power from within um, and, and the rise and rise of the Western art movement and its, its degradation and destruction almost by its own people based on, on read that, the reading that book. And it's, it's a problem that I've found, in, in, that I've noticed and possibly observed from a distance in many Aboriginal communities and that's the adherence to family rather than an adherence to our mob. You hear the rhetoric of our mob and our people, but you often see and practice favouritism for families, which often creates a less than united front um, in, in taking on some of these bigger issues. Um, so I just wondered if you had anything to say about, about that. I mean, I remember a pastoralist once saying to me on the Darling River, if they can get united themselves, then they'll really have progress, mm. rather than so much disparate dis disharmony and discord you know, as a result of, of, of being all lumped together, mm. um, you know, with, with land, with with, uh, with colonisation and with mission stations and all that sort of thing, it's it's a really difficult problem. 
I think it is, and I think you're raising a very important issue about uh, Indigenous uh, community governance. Um, I guess um, what I would say there is that uh, looking at the uh, wider society, of course, Indigenous people aren't the only ones um, who uh, participate in, in what can be uh, described as unacceptable governance practices. Um, they just tend to do it fighting over the small bickies rather than the big bickies. Um, and, and the reason that they do it, I think you quite accurately um, you know, portray, is often people coming under pressure from kin and family uh, to share what are very scarce resources. What we need to do is to develop you know, appropriate governance strategies to deal with those sorts of pressures that we know have been around uh, you know, since basically Indigenous uh, community organisations have become incorporated and have had all Indigenous boards. And the way to do that is to develop appropriate governance structures which are intercultural, not just Western cultural. I think that we've got a great deal of focus and people like Russell Skelton are very good at doing this, you know, sort of forensic journalists at going in and telling us the bad news story. But what they often don't tell you is the history of that, how that's become and the pressures from outside we heard earlier from Alice Springs about the constantly changing programs. And sometimes, yes, people do get quite cynical and dispirited and think while the resources are here, we'll make sure that we look after our family or our mob. So I think that there's many ways of uh, organisational capacity building and institutional strengthening that will get us around those sorts of problems. They'll, they'll never disappear, but of course you want public funds applied to the to the program for which they've been allocated and you don't want them going to particular families. Um, I guess um, you know, one, one of the things um, I would say though is that if the response to that is to get rid of community-based organisations, we're, we're going the wrong way. What we need to do is to, uh, if you like, strengthen those communities and provide them with more resources uh, in terms of capacity building rather than to think, as I think um, you know, has become the dominant way of, of doing business uh, in the last decade, that you can go around these community-based organisations and deliver programs from Canberra or from Darwin to remote Indigenous places. And that is ridiculous. You have to have community-based organisations as the carapace, as the mediators, as the empowerers. And if we haven't got those structures right, we need to work with the community to get them right. Because one thing's for sure, that the community wants those organisations to work effectively. They don't want particular sections of their community, if you like, getting um, you know, unfair benefit and to see the formation of classes within these remote and very, very poor places. Um, uh, thank you. Yeah. I have, uh, I have three more people, but we'll have to be pretty quick with them because we're coming up to uh, morning tea time. So, Thank you. Got one over here. Thank you, Thank John. You. Over here. Sorry. Thank Sorry, you for your on, on fantastic your right. presentation. My name is Noni Wales. I'm from Matrix On Board, and we do capacity building with community-based organisations. That's our reason for being. We're passionate about the importance of community-based organisations, and we do a lot of work with Indigenous organisations around cultivating that intercultural practice, as you say. It's a complex, tricky, ever-interesting place that we get to work. Um, I have a question around um, the, the language that came out in the budget for Indigenous policy. And I guess because you have a policy uh, history, um, what does Indigenous advance, advancement and even civil society, in terms of these words that have come back into the policy, what does that signal in terms of resurrecting old policy frameworks or signalling a new framework. And I guess I ask because we are working with a lot of Indigenous boards. Part of our role is to help them navigate sector reform policy change. So it would be just great if you could give us a sketch on what is that signalling. That's, that's a very good question and, and I'll try and do it very briefly because I'm actually grappling with this myself and I'm writing something about it at the moment. But, but in a nutshell, I think this represents a going back to that very deeply embedded post-evolutionary, um, sorry, post-enlightenment evolutionary thinking. And I think this is a way of thinking that's often very dominant amongst conservatives and liberals. 
And I think that the message to me is very clear. We're not going to worry about closing the gap. We're going to worry about Indigenous advancement, dot, 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 to integration. This is another way of eliminating Indigenous societies and hence its focus on remote Australia because, again, conservatives who forelog tug to people like Andrew Bolt believe that the problem, Indigenous development problem, is only in remote Australia where, again, the code is the real Aboriginal people live. In the rest of Australia, where 80% of Indigenous people live, these people are not real and mainstream institutions will deal with them equitably and will look after them. Now, this is sheer fantasy and it really needs to be challenged and, 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 and criticised very, very vigorously. Thank you. Uh, right down the back there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, hi, John. Kirsty Allen from the Meyer Foundation in Sydney. Meyer hi. How are you going? <laughs> Uh, you, meant, you used the phrase empowered communities in your presentation mm. and I can't believe that you did that unknowingly mm. um, be because I'm referring to capital E, capital C empowered mm. communities mm. which is uh, rolling out across a number of regions around Australia. I just wondered if you could comment on the intersection or otherwise of empowered communities with the idea of and the actuality of Aboriginal people living on and caring for country and how it may or help or hinder them to demonstrate the, the benefits that they derive and deliver from, you know, in terms of health, social and economic de benefits that they derive and deliver from doing that. I think you might sort of refer to that in your previous answer. I did, but, and I'll just make the comment, maybe people here aren't aware that there is a thing called the Empowered Communities Program. Uh, and um, look, my reference to Empowered Communities is actually quite genuine and descriptive. I wasn't thinking particularly about that program. Um, the program is one, of course, of um, Tony Abbott's election commitments to Noel Pearson uh, to give him uh, millions of dollars to experiment with empowering communities the Pearson way. And... Um, because I am a great believer in diversity, um, I think it's probably a good idea to try different ways of empowering communities. But all I say is that when we do things um, the Pearson way, uh, let's check on the dollar inputs and let's check on the sustainability of the outcomes. Because much of the work that's gone on uh, in Cape York um, under the welfare reform trials, uh, trials that never seem to end, ongoing trials, haven't had the sort of independent scrutiny that one might like. But, but if this model suits particular people, this Empowered Communities Program, um, we have to support it. But, but, if it's, but if it's not effective, then of course we have to defund it. And one of the really worrying things that's now coming out of the Indigenous Advisory Council is that community-based organisations that are doing a good job and meeting their objectives according to, um, to any sort of evaluative criteria might still get defunded if they don't accord with the government's aspirations for jobs, education and community security. If you're an arts organisation doing great things with artists uh, but you don't meet the government's other objectives, you will be defunded. And this, to my mind, is a form of community disempowerment disempowering community rather than empowering community. Thank you, John. And right on, on our left, right down the very back, we have what final question. Hi, I'm Sky Anderson and I'm from Bendigo Senior Secondary College. And being of Aboriginal descent myself, I'd like to know what you think will happen to Aboriginal uh, Indigenous youth in the next 10 years. That, that's a huge question. <laughs> but... but but one of the things I would say, well, I'd say two things. One is that we need to hear politically more and more from Indigenous youth about their aspirations. Because sometimes I worry that there's too much deference to elders or older Indigenous people. And I'm not advocating for a breakdown of proper customary way of doing things, but I am saying that in circumstances where Indigenous youth 
feel that they have important things to say, we hear about their aspirations and where they want to go in the future. I think, I think what, what I find most dispiriting is that, um, and, and it was alluded to already in relation to Alice Springs, is that uh, the current circumstances are making um, many Indigenous people feel that they haven't got hopeful futures in Australian society. And I think that that is an extraordinarily dangerous uh, place to be. We already know about the unbelievably high levels of incarceration of Indigenous youth. And all this talk about applying the ordinary law of the land in Indigenous communities sounds to me just like more and more incarceration rather than enabling Indigenous people to have the education, the training and the livelihood pathways that they aspire to have. And again, this needs to come from them, them though because if you're going to sit around and wait for Canberra to define it for you, what they're going to do is turn you into a precarious labour force uh, working in the late capitalist system rather than working uh, according to your aspirations. And your aspirations may, of course, include that uh, risky possibility. Can you please join me in thanking John Ock? We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.